Hello and welcome to History West Midlands, our regular in-depth examination of various aspects of the black country. In a letter to his wife dated 17th of July 1757, after narrowly avoiding a shipwreck, Benjamin Franklin wrote, Were I a Roman Catholic, perhaps I should, on this occasion, vow to build a chapel to some saint. But, as I'm not, if I were to vow at all, it should be to build a lighthouse. Now, in the days when Britannia ruled the waves and long before any coordinated system for maritime safety, mariners relied heavily for guidance on sightings of lighthouses that were little more than illumination on top of a prominence or tower. But as the world opened up to globalisation, such rudimentary aids proved increasingly inadequate. On the 18th of May 1824, Robert Lucas Chance purchased the works of the British Crown Glass Company on the borders of Smethwick and a rapidly developing Birmingham. His brother William joined him in 1832 and sealed the future for a company that was to become the largest glassmaker in the land. But it was the Great Exhibition of 1851, held in a crystal palace for which Chancellors had supplied the paints, that not only propelled the firm to the forefront of glassmaking, but also saw its entry into the manufacture of lighthouse lenses, a field wherein it reigned supreme for over a century, and the legacy of which can still be seen in virtually every lighthouse around the globe. The Smellick site finally closed in 1981, yet its stark remains are still very much extant, and no one can drive along the M5 motorway without noticing the imposing seven-storey building directly alongside the canal. But who were the Chance family? What was their background? How did they coalesce into a company of global significance? And what in particular diverted them into the science of lens technology? How well did they prosper? And what was the impact of both their rise and fall in the local community and beyond? What's their legacy? And what is the future for that enormous industrial relic that still remains on the Smethwick border? Joining me today to shed light on these questions is a direct descendant of the Chance dynasty, a politician and now resident in South Africa, and the author of Lighthouses, The Race to Illuminate the World. He is Toby Chance. Toby, uh, welcome to Westminster's History. And uh, I'd like to start by establishing the scope of the Chance Brothers dynasty, if you could enlighten us on the background, where they originated from, how the family became involved in glassmaking and where you actually fit into it all. Thank you, Graham. Yeah. The Chance family are very much a Worcestershire family, dating back to at least beyond the 1500s, when we can trace the family pretty accurately. And mostly were farmers farming stock until 1771, when William Chance, who's the father of Lucas Chance, the founder of Chance Brothers, went into the iron trading business with his friend Edward Homer in Birmingham. Meanwhile, down the road in Nelsie near Bristol, Lucas's uncle, had bought the Nelsie Glassworks in 1788, and his father went into business with him in 1790, and this was the beginning of the association with glass. Lucas Chance had been running his father's trading business until the late 1700s, and then he became actively involved in the glass business in Nelsie, until around about 1815, when he decided that he was going to set up on his own. And a few years later, he needed a source of glass, which was when he purchased the British Crown Glass Company in 1824. So I think it was a combination of the trading experience of his father with his uncle's business in glass that led to him combining the two and becoming a manufacturer as well as a salesman. So the family really from there on has been associated with glass until we we reach today where we're talking about its history. You are, if I'm correct, the great-great-grandson of James Timmins Chance. Uh, where does he fit into the dynasty? 
Well, James Chance is William Chance's eldest son, William Chance being Lucas Chance's younger brother. James Timmins Chance went into the family business in 1838, having left Cambridge. And he was the person that I think more than anybody brought the scientific element of glassmaking to the family. And his son, George Chance, was also chairman of Chance Brothers. And George's son, Hugh Chance, was the last chairman of Chance Brothers. And I am his grandson, hence my being great-great-grandson of James Timmins Chance. I'm trying to get a handle on the trajectory of such a business from virtually nothing to the largest in the UK. It must have been incredibly entrepreneurial. Who were the driving forces behind that? Lucas Chance was obviously a very driven man. He was hugely ambitious. He was entrepreneurial. He took risks. He had a great authority and a huge respect amongst his peers. And he took advantage of huge opportunities that arose. And I think probably the most important of that was the lifting of the excise duty in 1845, which led to an explosion in the demand for window glass and all sorts of other glass. Was that patent plate? No, no. Patent plate was the name that's almost like the trade name that Chance Brothers gave to the form of sheet glass, which was invented by James. And he created a method of grinding and polishing sheet glass to make it into patent plate, which was as strong as plate glass, but much thinner, which enabled it to be glazed in much larger panes. And that was really what gave Chance Glass the edge in the 1840s. There was a period in the middle of the uh, 19th century where we uh, not only had the repeal of the glass tax, but the window tax and the salt tax, all of which had an impact on the burgeoning glass industry of the time. How important was it for you to stay entrepreneurially, innovatively ahead of the game? Chance Glass has always had a reputation for being not just a manufacturer of a single product, which was both its greatest strength and probably its greatest weakness. It made optical glass, it made stained glass for churches, it made lighthouse glass, it made ornamental glass as well as the standard plate glass for windows and so on. And I think that that took various skills and interests from within the family dynasty, because it wasn't just William and Lucas, it was their children and their grandchildren and various other cousins and business associates that was able to expand the business into different areas. For example, the Albury Works was actually a chemical works, which became a very important source of raw materials for Chance Glass and eventually became one of the companies that formed ICI in the early 1900s. So they were always on the lookout for new opportunities, and that's, I guess, what marks an entrepreneur. I'd like to drill down into your involvement with Lighthouse Optics shortly, but first of all, can I examine the social conscience, if you will, of the dynasty? In a letter to his mother written in 1861, James Chance, the man who succeeded Lucas, revealed his priorities when he wrote, We must all receive the truth, even though it may not coincide with our previous ideas. I deem it to be a first duty, besides a high privilege and pleasure, to accept simple truth. It argues a want of faith in God to shrink from the light. And the light, significantly, is in capitals. What was the social conscience, the expression of views on uh, education, recreation, the welfare of his employees? How did the dynasty treat his workers? Yeah, well, going back to the quote, we should remember that James Timmins Chance, before he joined the family firm, had trained as a lawyer. And before that, he actually had almost taken holy orders. And I think his Anglicanism, his faith, was a very important part of his life throughout not just his personal life, but also his business life. 
And that, I think, extended to his father and the other members of his family. Lucas Chancellor, on the other hand, was a Unitarian, more of a radical than either William or his son James. But together, this meant that they believed in good works. They believed in using the talents and the privileges that they had had to give back to the community. And the most important one was the employers of Chance Brothers. So they built schools, they endowed churches, they built parks, they created a pension scheme. You know, they were, I think, of the view that to protect the profits and to grow the company meant that they had to invest in their people. And it's very clear that the longevity of many of their employees who were with the company for several generations in some case, I think was a measure of their loyalty to that ideal. We have spoken in a separate broadcast to a former employee who does indeed wax lyrical about his treatment and was, um, I think, fair to say mortified when the company shut. He felt he'd lost a family friend, so uh, it seemed to have done the trick. But uh, let's look at the great success of Chance Brothers, the thing that really put it on the map, if we can point to one thing that did. There was lots of other things it achieved, and that's at Lighthouse Optics. And the machinery that went with it, of course. We mustn't forget that... Not only did Chances make the uh, optics for lighthouses, they made all the workings to power the lens as well. It was a complete package. What were the factors that caused the company to divert into something for which it was ultimately to become world famous? Yeah, a very interesting question. Chance Brothers began to make optical glass in the 1830s. And optical glass is the most difficult form of glass to make. Very, very high precision, both in its casting and in its polishing and grinding. In 1845, Sir David Brewster, who was one of Britain's most renowned optical scientists, wrote to James Chance and asked him whether he'd thought of applying the technology to the manufacture of lighthouse lenses. And the reason he did this was because he had been long in conflict, intellectual and technology sort of views conflict with the Stevenson family, who were very much wedded to old technology of reflectors as opposed to dioptrics using glass. And he was looking for a manufacturer in Britain who had the capability to build lenses and compete with the French. The French had started using dioptric lenses since 1822 when Augustin Fresnel, another optical scientist, invented the dioptric lens. He gave the French a, probably a 10 to 20 year lead. And very, very few companies around the world actually made Fresnel lenses. After the French, there were only two or three companies that did that. There was only one British company that succeeded, Cookson's, which was the other one, made a couple of lenses, but they were pretty rudimentary. The Germans began to make some lenses, and eventually in America some lenses were made. But it was a very, very precise business, and the Fresnel technology essentially stayed the same with a few adaptions, notably the holophotal lens by Stevenson's and additions from James Chance, such as the dioptric mirror. The principles of dioptrics and catadioptrics really didn't change much until today. So uh, not to be outdone by a challenge, Chance Brothers decided that they would attempt to build the first functional lighthouse lens, and they accomplished this in 1851 and were able to exhibit the first Chance lens at the Great Exhibition in 1851. So I think it was a combination of things. It was the need to diversify. I think it was James Chance's mathematics and engineering prowess which presented the Chance glass business with an opportunity to diversify and also um, the growing need for lighthouses around the world. How and 
more importantly, why did Lighthouse technology evolve in the Victorian era? I'm going to stick my neck out and suggest that it might be something to do with the transition from sail to steam power, but no doubt you'll correct me. No, that's absolutely right. Oh. The Lighthouse has been described by some historians as a tool of empire, by which I think is meant that in the 19th century, Europe expanded its reach across the globe, and of course Britain became the largest empire the world had ever seen, and we ruled the waves. And in order to rule the waves, you needed to have both the transportation mechanisms and the safety devices to stop shipwrecks happening on a massive scale. And the transition from sail to steam was important because steamships sailed a lot faster than sailing ships. So when it went over the horizon, a steamship didn't have as long to take evasive action before it saw a rock or a, a piece of headland which meant that the lighthouse had to be more powerful so that its beam could extend further than just a couple of miles. So the lighthouse optics progressively became bigger and bigger and bigger, and you reached the point where, in the late 19th century, the hyperradial lens was invented, which was an enormous piece of technology. I mean, probably three or 400 pieces of glass. Only about 15 of these were ever built. And these produced a light of several million candle power, which enabled ships to see the light way before it potentially hit the rocks. So yeah, as Britain became more and more of a maritime empire, it needed the technology both to transport its goods and its soldiers and to protect them as they sailed around headlands. So the development of the lighthouse by chances was without question a major contribution to maritime safety. Very much so. And the other big, mainly French manufacturers, I think between them and Chance, pretty much locked up the market. Chance Brothers produced something in the region of 2,500 optics between 1851 and the 1970s when the firm was eventually sold. And these can be found in close to 100 countries around the world. Many of them are still there. And those that are not operating have been taken out of the lighthouse and preserved in a museum nearby. It seems the Chance sense of innovation came to the fore again here because I gather that there were originally some quite unflattering comparisons with the Continental's products, especially at the Paris Exhibition in 1855. But you took some time out to remedy that and ended up world leaders. Yes, it's quite right. In fact, in the 18, mid-1850s, they nearly closed down the lighthouse works because they were battling with the technology. I mean, let's face it, several British companies had failed. Technologically, it was a huge challenge to get the glass composition right and to get the optics correct so that a piece of glass is going to reflect accurately a shaft of light out to the horizon. So um, they went back to the drawing board. After having installed five or six lights, they went and started to consult some more engineers. And then in 1861, James Chance was consulted by the Lighthouse Royal Commission and developed a very close relationship with Michael Faraday. And I think that probably was the turning point both because Chance Brothers had the manufacturing capacity to ramp up production, and also they had the scientific advice of people like Michael Faraday and the astronomer Royal George Airy. They were able to then improve the technology to the point where in 1867, I think, at the Paris Exhibition, the quality of their lenses was regarded as equal to, if not greater, than the French. We uh, have a contemporary report from that that uh, backs that up uh, from a, a captain close for many years, the superiority of French glass left England entirely dependent on that country, until Mr James Chance of Birmingham took the matter in hand 
and the Trinity House exhibition in Paris proves the success that has crowned the labours of this talented and indefatigable gentleman, both in respect of glass, workmanship and optical science. Now, the uh, success of chances over the generations is without doubt, but the word disappointment as well. For example, the effects of the decision not to adapt the Siemens tank process in the 1870s. How did that manifest itself on the business? And indeed, what was the Siemens tank process? Why was it so important? I think the Siemens tank process was probably the equivalent in the 1860s and 70s of the flat glass process invented by Sir Alistair Pilkington almost 100 years later. In other words, it was a huge technological breakthrough which massively increased the productivity of glass manufacture. But it involved a large capital investment. So Chance Brothers at that stage prevaricated and they decided not to invest for the first few years in this technology, whilst Pilkington's did. And I think that that gave them the edge because it meant that they could increase capacity faster than Chance Brothers was able to do. They eventually did take on the technology, but I think they'd lost some of the edge. And it's arguable that that loss of nerve, in a way, was an indication of how Lucas Chance's risk-taking had taken a back seat to maybe a more conservative approach to running the business by his son. And uh, by that time, James Chance had also taken over the chairmanship. And again, his interest in lighthouses it could be said to have taken the firm's eye off the ball. So a whole series of factors, I think, led to that being a bit of a, a turning point in the firm's history. The effects of the First World War also were, came hard on the heels of this, did they not? How did that manifest itself on the company? Did it struggle? The main effect of the First World War was British ordnance required millions of gun sights and submarine lenses. And, you know, Britain needed a source of optical glass because Germany was the only other source available. So when the war started, obviously they couldn't buy their glass from Germany. So Chance Brothers, you know, went into deep negotiations with the Admiralty. And this was the result. A large number of furnaces were turned over to the manufacturer of optical glass at a loss. And in fact, in 1918, the records show that the company had to write off a loss of around about £45,000, which in those days was several million pounds in today's money. It took a while to recover from that. The firm survived and continued to do well for many further decades, but uh, there were occasional intermittent decisions that, in hindsight, were perhaps so beneficial. And I'm thinking of the decision not to licence Pyrex, for example, and Pilkington's acquisition in 1945 of the thick end of half the company. Did the firm exhibit any last-minute innovations of its own before it uh, started its slow demise? Yeah, Chance Brothers and Pilkingtons started to collaborate as early as the 1920s. And they, I think, decided to have more of a collaborative approach than a directly competitive relationship. Pilkingtons began to buy up Chance shares, mainly from the French Saint-Gobain, whose relationship with Chance Brothers dates back to the mid-1800s. But I think that Chance Brothers was able to stay ahead in many other areas. They licensed the sumo pump, a submergible motor, which is a source of significant profits from the 1940s onwards. They did decide not to license Corning's Pyrex, which I think was a bad mistake back in the 1920s. But they invented glass fibre, which led to a huge explosion of technology. They also made the first television tubes for John Logie Baird's TVs. And they innovated in the field of tableware and glass for you know railway engines and, and all sorts of different things. So 
their product range was vast and it was a source of, I think, strain on the balance sheet because it required constant reinvestment in technology. And this probably led to Pilkington's eventually taking over the business in 1945, or at least taking a, a majority shareholding, because they had concentrated on really one product line, which was flat glass. And in fact, they never ever made anything else, pretty much. Chance Brothers became acquisition target, and I think Pilkington's was the obvious one. Rather than going to the market and maybe trying to find external shareholders, they felt comfortable with being part of a family business. I remember that Pilkington's, until it was bought out, I think, 10 years ago by the Japanese, it remained a family business for possibly longer than any other large industrial enterprise in Britain. Let's put a scale to the size of the factory. Just how big was it? How many people did it employ at its peak? At its peak, it was about 3,500 employees. And when was that? Early part of the 20th century, between the wars. I think it's probably fair to say that it was one of Britain's largest industrial enterprises. It covered an extent of 30 acres, a large area. Only a tiny fraction of that is still undeveloped or will become developed as part of the new project on that site. So uh, it was a large company, and I, I'm not sure how many employees it had eventually when Pilkington took it over, but you know, as an industrial enterprise, it certainly was one of the largest in the West Midlands. We mustn't forget that although the post-war years saw let's say, mixed fortunes. The firm continued very successfully for many decades thereafter, did it not? Yes, it did. I mean, the Chance name actually continued until 1981, when the factory in Spon Lane closed its doors for the last time. Can you remind us of some of the innovations that were made uh, in that period, up to its closure? I think post the Second World War, it was mainly in the field of decorative glass and tableware. Products like the spider's web and the handkerchief glassware, which are now collector's items, were very much part of the chance product range. The roll plate glass works was still the major source of income and profit, but the innovations were, I think, mainly in the domestic glassware range. The range has ended up around the world and in some quite famous buildings, the original part of the White House, I understand that, chance window panes. Yes, this is a claim which has been disputed by some people. Mostly Americans, I would Yeah, <laughs> uh, it, it, but yeah, there are records to suggest that some of the ornamental glass in the White House was supplied by Chance Brothers. Chance Brothers glazed the Houses of Parliament. The white glass of the Big Ben face is made by Chance Brothers. And probably most famous of all, the glass for the Crystal Palace. That must have been Chance's crowning achievement, the Great Exhibition of 1851. What sort of items were on display there with the name of Chance on them? Most importantly, Chance glazed the palace. 900,000 square feet of glass were produced in a matter of a few months. And quite an interesting story, actually, how this happened, because Joseph Paxton, who had been chosen very, very late in the day to design the Crystal Palace or to design the structure for the Great Exhibition, which became known as the Crystal Palace, so named by Punch magazine in rather a dismissive fashion, had to be built, and it had to be built quickly. And the two companies that were commissioned to do so were Fox and Henderson, which was an engineering company in, in Birmingham who provided the steel or the cast iron, and uh, Chance Brothers, who produced the glass. And Lucas Chance and Fox and Henderson knew each other, so it was a natural choice. And the rapid manufacture of this glass and the industrialization of the construction process was itself a huge feat of engineering. It was the first mass-produced building, really, and the first use of glass as an architectural and decorative material all rolled into one. So within 
the Crystal Palace. The main product that was on display from Chance Brothers was the lens of James Chance, as well as some huge lenses for telescopes, which had come out of the optical works, as well as other sorts of more mundane products. But the combination of having glazed it and having the only British manufactured functioning lens for a lighthouse in the Crystal Palace, I think, yeah, could be seen to be its crowning achievement, even though the company carried on for another 130 years. What stimulated your interest to delve into your family history, Toby? And in particular, what's attracted you to lighthouses? Of course, being a chance, you can't help but know about the history. And we always, when I grew up in Warwickshire, knew that the company had had an illustrious history. And I think from a very early age, I'd noted that nobody had actually updated my great-great-uncle's book written in 18, 1919, History of the Firm of Chance Brothers. And I sort of made it a, an ambition of mine to do that. But the occasion really only presented itself when, in South Africa, I visited a lighthouse one day and introduced myself. And I could see the eyes of the, the lighthouse keeper, Mr. Peter Dennett, sort of just about popped out of his sockets because he had met a chance, a descendant of the family, and there he was, the lighthouse keeper of the famous Slunkop Lighthouse in Cape Town. And uh, I began to realise that actually there was a story here to be written. It was going to be originally a TV documentary series, but then my wife and I, she's a documentary producer, realised that before we could produce the documentary, we had to do the research, and the research then led to the book. You're clearly immensely proud and uh, enthused by your own roots, Toby, but uh, looking back on the history of chances, what would you say was uh, the legacy does the name still survive anywhere? It does, actually. It survives in two places, at least. You couldn't find any more completely different instances. The first is Chance Glass has an operation in Malvern. There's a group of former employees of Chance Brothers who left the company and bought the trademark for Chance Glass, as well as my grandfather's signature, funnily enough, Hugh Chance's signature. And if you go to their plant in Malvern, you'll find that they are still making microscopic lenses and tubes so are retaining the chance interest in optical glass, and they have a small business but sell their products worldwide. And then there's another outfit in Australia run by an interesting fellow called Tim Nugan. Not quite sure if that's pronounced correctly, but anyway, he's a Vietnamese who came over from Vietnam on a boat, you know, the boat people in the 1970s, and is an engineer and has a passion for lighthouses. So he's set up a business called Chance Brothers. If you go to chancebrothers.com, you will find his website. And he now concentrates on restoring lighthouse lenses from all over the world. And his latest venture is to recreate an original crown glass casting, blowing, grinding and polishing facility in Australia so that he can actually produce the original lenses going back to the 1850s that could then be used to repair Fresnel lenses all over the world. So... It's remarkable. And I mean, if you go and you talk to any lighthouse enthusiast around the world, you will find that they know the chance name. There it is emblazoned on the brass plates. And if you talk to the people of Smethwick, you will find a great affection for the company. Many former employees or children of former employees talk fondly about the company. So it definitely has a legacy. There's no question about it. I did mention in the introduction that nobody can drive down the M5 motorway without seeing this enormous, sprawling industrial relic. What would you like to see happen to it? Well, I am very pleased to say that the buildings are protected. They're Grade 2 listed buildings, so they can't just be knocked down. 
But I think rather than just standing there as relics, they need to be redeveloped. Thankfully, two far-sighted local businessmen bought them up or took a lease out on them some years ago and have started to at least preserve them and stop them from falling down. But I think steps are being taken to totally redevelop the entire property with a, a focus on heritage, preservation, education, and also entrepreneurship and providing space for small businesses to start up. And I think that what I'd like to see happen is that the Chance Brothers ethos of entrepreneurship, innovation, and social responsibility be combined into one, which would then see the site, I think, regain its past glories, but in a very different way, but for the um, energy and enthusiasm of its founders to be maintained in some other guise. And on that optimistic note, my thanks to Toby Chance for his quite literally illuminating contribution. There's more on the history of Chance. In the History West Midlands magazine, there is dedicated in total to Glass, including a contribution from Toby himself on Chance Brothers. To obtain a copy, go to www.historywm.com, click on Editions and look for Issue 4 of Spring 2014. On the same website, you can also find a presentation of just over six minutes duration featuring Chance Brothers by going to the homepage, clicking on Films and scrolling down to the Black Country section. A comprehensive resume of chances can also be found on the Revolutionary Players section, again accessible from their homepage. And as always, if you wish to obtain current and back issues of our History West Midlands magazine, watch the accompanying presentations, subscribe to our audio resources or simply contact us. You can do it all by going through the History West Midlands website, that address again is www.historywn.com, and following the relevant links. Meanwhile, Lighthouses, The Race to Illuminate the World, written by Toby Chance and Peter Williams and published by New Holland, is still available via the internet. However, History West Midlands has a number of copies signed personally by Toby Chance, available again through the History West Midlands website. Join me next time for more fascinating insights into the black country. Until then, enjoy your history and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.